الجزيرة بودكاست Omar Atman grew up visiting his grandmother in Egypt. After her retirement, she moved to Cairo to a neighborhood called Sheraton. Her apartment there looked out over a garden. For Omar's grandmother and her neighbors, the garden they planted and cared for brought happiness and a sense of community. It helped insulate them against the upheavals of Egypt's turbulent last decade. Until one day, it was suddenly gone. The story, like the simple story of the urban transformation of Cairo that Egyptians tell to each other, like the joking story is like, oh, it's all just bridges and cafes. Everything, even like these most quiet residential areas are being turned over to profit making. And in the last few years, for many, it's felt like it's happening at breakneck speed. Under President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the Egyptian government has embarked on massive building projects. We will continue to reform the economy, build massive development projects throughout Egypt, support small and medium projects, and improve the domestic and foreign investment climate. At the centerpiece of it all, a new administrative capital, which already has begun to open as government offices move their workers from Cairo. The government says that it's modernizing Egypt, but for many in Cairo, that's not how it feels. So what are the costs of this modernization? And who is it intended to benefit? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Omar told the story of his grandmother's neighborhood garden in an episode of the podcast The Dig Presents. And he told me about how this one garden and the neighborhood's efforts to save it reflect the changes going on in Egypt. My name is Omar Etman. I live in New York City. For the last two years, I've spent a lot of time in Egypt where the idea and like feelings and interest in this story came about. I loved this story, loved the entire podcast. So let's start with the basics. What is your relationship with Egypt? I grew up going often and I was born in Egypt, but was raised mostly in the United States. In 2021, thanks to the pandemic, Omar found himself able to work remotely. So he went back to Cairo to stay at his grandmother's apartment. It was slow time. And so I mostly just sat on her balcony, <laughs> which overlooks this garden which used to overlook this garden. Omar's grandmother describes the garden as the jewel of the neighborhood. First of all, it's, uh, it looks like very beautiful, you know, the green, the, the, uh, the flowers. Uh, it's very nice. It gives uh, a picture of uh, life. <laughs> this garden was about a kilometer long, nestled between two streets in the neighborhood. But if you get a sense of Cairo's sprawl, you can begin to understand why this space in Sheraton felt so precious. Sheraton is on the edge of what is historic Cairo. Sort of, it's, it still feels like part of like the urban core. And it's an extension of this neighborhood called Heliopolis, which was one of the first suburbs of Cairo. It's mostly apartment buildings on these wide boulevards that have these medians in the middle that are full of grass. My grandma moved there in 2002, I think, 
and has been there since. Mm. I lived in Egypt briefly, and whenever we could make it out of Cairo to a place like Heliopolis, it felt like a breath of fresh air because it does feel more green. It felt cleaner. It felt, I don't know, kind of suburban. What does your grandmother and her memories of the time, what does she tell you? Oh, my grandma loves Egypt so much. And she's so romantic about the Egypt that she has been able to live in. My grandma's actually from a town in the middle of the Nile Delta called Mahal al-Kubra, which is home to the nationalized cotton spinning and weaving company. Egyptian cotton like has its roots there. And with that like enormous factory and factory town, it became a real like site of like labor activism and organizing. And so many of the popular uprisings that have like swept across Egypt trace their start to Mahal al-Kubra. My grandma started working at that factory when she was maybe 20, and then worked there until she was 60, her entire adult life. My grandma, because of the ways that she has benefited from this one Egyptian structure, really believes in Egypt. And so talks about Sheraton, her life after that company, her life since she's retired, with like a similar romanticism. Yeah. What she likes about Sheraton is that she can go for a walk. Mm-hmm because it's very important for her to walk and she likes to go and see her friends. And I she, love it. And like, and like 15 years ago, <laughs> 10 years ago, she would go and see her friends in Heliopolis. But now those walks that were so important to her because of so much development are nearly impossible. Wow. So your piece focused on a garden in her neighborhood that disappeared almost overnight. What was the garden like and what happened to it? The garden was one of those median spaces It was between the two roads that were in front of my grandma's apartment. When my grandma moved there, all her neighbors told me it was just barren land. And eventually, as the neighborhood filled up and became alive, the tenants council in my grandma's building decided that they wanted to do something about the garden. And so they had meetings where they decided what plants to choose and how they'll water it, and they ran a pipe under the road. All of this was to create what the neighbors described as an oasis. But despite the work they put into cultivating it, one day it was gone. And no one really knew why. This story has been told to me by many of my grandma's neighbors. In each retelling, it sounds like a movie. There was a sign that said the roads would be widened. That was actually the sign that said the roads would be widened. And the neighbors were confused because it was a really quiet neighborhood with little traffic. They couldn't understand why someone, for them it was impossible to know who, would choose to widen the roads. And so... My grandma, her neighbors, like the representatives from the street, went to the municipal council and were like, what is going on? Like widening widening the road, why? But Egypt, like a lot of places, is a place where it's not usually constructive or worthwhile or smart to ask why. The municipal council was like, sorry, it's going to happen. And then truly almost overnight, really, really early in the morning, the neighbors awoke to the bricks like pavers that formed the sidewalk that lined the perimeter of the garden on the side of my grandma's building were removed. And then weeks later, the roads had been widened with parking on either side. Wow. And the garden was both destroyed and shrunk. What was like sort of like the dirt pile that remained was also now skinnier. Mm. It happened really quickly. It happened really quickly. So quickly that there's a moment in your podcast that is really striking and it's the moment that you and your grandmother are in a cab coming to her home from a stint in the United States, and your grandmother doesn't think she's at home. We come back from the airport, and the driver pulls up in front of her building, and he says, you're here. 
and we say where. Omar's grandma doesn't recognize where here is. Sorry to say I found a change. I didn't know my uh, building. <laughs> Imagine. Because the street is huge and there are no markers of the life that we knew, the life that she knew. Yeah. And then we just looked at each other and we laughed and, we, and then we got really quiet for a long time. So residents couldn't stop the demolition. Tell me about who lives in this neighborhood and how it affected the area. Sheraton is mostly upper-middle-class people, or people who were once upper-middle-class, but given a really austere economic reality for years now, are probably more realistically middle-class people with nice things they bought 20 years ago. But a lot of them are doctors and engineers and, you know, the people who did a good job and listened and likely had parents who did a good job and listened. Listened as in got good jobs in careers that are meant to pay well and lead to a comfortable life? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. And also they weren't, what I say listened, I mean also they weren't politically disruptive. They accepted the benefit that came to them at the cost of maybe like growing repression. And so they were people who like, were tricked into thinking that they had power in this society. Mm. Or maybe once did, but very quickly have lost it. And so I think my grandma and her neighbors thought that they were people who could actually do something about, at least in this very small scale, what's happening in Egypt. And I think they were really shook by this realization that, no, not even you can stop this locomotive of change. There's a moment in the podcast when he wonders what the garden could eventually become if it'll even become anything at all. Omar, can you read it for us? One day in August, I noticed new signs on either end of the garden, jammed into the dirt at an angle. Attention, this land is property of the armed forces. The theories I've heard so far, they're going to turn it into cafes. What else could the parking be for? Or a bridge. Though maybe not a bridge, because a mosque shields the road. Or that it'll become a bridge and they'll put cafes under it. Some neighbors say, with a measure of resignation and relief, that it's going to be a dirt pile forever. Those options sound very limited, but those are the options that people imagine. Yeah. What happened to Sheraton is horrible, and it's not unexpected. I think part of the reason that the neighbors submitted to their neighborhood's fate is because they saw what happened in other neighborhoods like theirs, and other neighborhoods across Cairo in the past many years. Egypt doesn't really have much public space. The public space is the space that people make public. And in most cases in Cairo and across Egypt, it's the street. But increasingly, the way you experience it, if you're lucky, is in a car that you pass over. Cairo is a place that you pass by as you're going from point A to point B. From a friend's house to a friend's house or home. From home to school. And so, for securitization reasons, a lot of this public space, a lot of this street has been taken because the lesson that this regime learned from the revolution is that something like that can't happen again. Omar's talking here about what transpired in Tahrir Square in 2011. The joy in the square was unconfined. After 18 days of protest, people power won. The square became internationally famous when Egyptians gathered there in protest, eventually toppling the country's longtime leader, Hosni Mubarak. 
the unshakable, immovable Arab leader. In the end, forced from office by the voices of the ordinary people he said he represented. Removed by those tired, frustrated and forgotten by his autocratic rule. But now, the square has gotten an update. The wide open space where protesters gathered is now home to an ancient obelisk and other archaeological artifacts. Some 3,000-year-old sphinxes are causing a stir. Authorities are being criticised for moving the ancient statues from their home in Luxor to a polluted traffic roundabout in Cairo's Tahrir Square. Meanwhile, the remnants of 2011's revolution are gone. Benches and trees fill the square. There is no more room for protest, and the authorities would not allow it. The more pernicious parts of this larger project affect working class and poor people who live for the most part, closer to the center of Cairo, in more crowded neighborhoods that, for reasons that the government cites as, like, safety concerns, effectively what they do is, like, slum clearance in the name of cleanliness. Mm. And they displace entire people so that they can build bridges and large market rate towers that not even people like my grandma can afford. Mm. Those are the people who are sort of most acutely and violently hurt because they're entire neighborhoods are taken. For people generally, the loss of public space looks like the public space that does remain, like the Corniche, the walkway along the Nile. Mm -hmm. Now, like, parts of it are being redone and then sectioned off and then ticketed. Ticketed, so for money? Yeah. Oh, wow. To see the Nile. Hmm. To make Egyptians pay to see the Nile, that's our whole thing. So the removal of the garden in Cairo happens to surprise to no one. And yet, it's still such an intimate violence. After the break, the Egyptian government is constructing a new capital city from scratch outside of Cairo. We'll hear about what that means for Egyptians. The Inside Story podcast dissects, analyzes, and helps define major global stories. We get into the details with experts who explain how policies affect people. The Inside Story podcast by Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Omar, we are talking about how Cairo has changed. And one of the most striking changes is that the government is constructing a new capital city from scratch. You mentioned it. It's in the desert. 30 miles outside of Cairo proper. It's just called the new administrative capital for now. And you and your family just decided one day you were going to go visit because there was nowhere else to go. There aren't many other places to go. Talk to me about what you found. If you watch TV in Egypt now, all of the ads, so many of the ads, are from the new administrative capital. This, like, magical place that from Cairo feels hard to imagine. Right. It's like going on an adventure. But after you hear about it and hear about it and hear about it, this place that is the promise of Egypt that no one has seen, my grandma and my aunt, and we were just kind of sitting there on the table, and it was kind of late. We were like, we'll we be able to catch it. And we were like, ah, oh, let's just go. <laughs> and so we went, and it's quite far out. It's quite a drive. I thought that they would just be building a new large neighborhood. But they were actually building clearly with a vision to like make a new center of life. Mm. 
it was just really quieting. Yeah. Like the scale of this project as most Egyptians like can't manage what to eat. You're like an hour outside of Cairo. And then suddenly there is a like New York city sized skyscraper. And like, and you like blink and look again and blink and look again. And it like remains there in a way that never makes sense. My grandma, who won't say a critical thing, was just like praying and praying and praying really quiet. Like even she was like, what's all this for? My aunt in the back, who is like this really practical minded person. She kept repeating like a version of the same question in the back. She was like, where would someone go to get tomatoes? What is all this for? is a question that Omar's grandmother is not alone in asking. Egypt's cost of living has gotten higher and higher. Al-Sisi has found money to build several huge new palaces and buy a new presidential plane, amongst other things. Actions that have enraged the Egyptian public, the vast majority of which lives on or below the poverty line. People are experiencing severe economic hardships even as the government presses on with its projects and promises of prosperity. The leadership has basically leveraged the state to finance their expansive consolidation of power. Timothy Caldas is the deputy director of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. I think it's reasonable to suspect that one of the motivations for building the new capital is to move the seat of government away from the general public and particularly sections of the public that are more economically vulnerable. I think that's probably the section of the population the government fears most at this point. So I think that's definitely a factor. I think additionally, there's been, you know, extraordinary opportunities to expand the patronage network of the regime through all of the economic opportunities that come with building a new capital, all the spending on the infrastructure, on the construction of housing and buildings. It's important to understand that the Egyptian state owns something like 90% of the land in Egypt because it's largely uninhabited, right? And so what they do is by designating new parcels of land as new cities or new suburbs, they dramatically increase the value of that land, which they can then sell to uh, property developers or make use of themselves. And then based on you know how they develop that land, take in much more money based on that. The new infrastructure has also raised environmental concerns and questions about whether it's even sustainable. The new administrative capital is going to have a central park that's reportedly going to be double the size of New York Central Park, as well as man-made lakes and a river. This is in a country with its severe water scarcity issues. The government's been building desalination plants, but it's quite, quite expansive. And so there's been a lot of really gaudy, destructive an unnecessary construction in a country that has, you know, quite limited green areas and quite limited financial resources. It's in the middle of yet another economic crisis, and and yet this all persists. I asked Omar how his family has been affected. I think, like, the story of Egypt right now is the story of economic hardship. The currency has been devalued, I think, for the sixth time since 2016, as a condition of receiving um, loans from the IMF. The price of basic goods has gone up in incredible amounts. People's incomes and wages are not going up. And this has been happening in successive waves for years in Egypt. But I think what makes this one distinct is that it is hurting more people and hurting them more acutely. Is that people like my grandma, 
are now finding that they too can't afford really basic things or things that were once essential to their lives. We have to make different choices about what we eat. There's limited travel. There's limited, you know, what is it? Like hunker down. Just everyone just like, I'm just going to close the door and, yeah. and go inside and sit at home, which maybe is what the government wants. Everyone to go home and sit inside and talk to each other a little less. That sounds useful to them. Finally, Omar, this is about more than just a garden. You have a line in your podcast episode describing what it felt like for many people back in 2011 and onwards at the time of the uprising. Wherever the people went, the space became public and the people were everywhere. And by the end of your podcast, spoiler alert, that has completely changed. So where does this leave Cairo and its people and you? I don't know. I do not know what is going to happen. It feels impossible to even hazard a guess as to what will happen next month at the end of this year. Because it does seem hard to imagine that people can hold on for much longer. I probably feel like hopeful and scared. I really love Cairo. I think it's such a special city. A friend of mine, after they heard the story, they described it as an elegy, which I hadn't thought of, but I think is right. I think it's an elegy for the garden and an elegy for what it meant to a group of neighbors. I don't think it's an elegy for Cairo. I think it's an elegy for the garden, so that does not need to be an elegy for Cairo. It is a, an elegy is a warning. And that's The Take. To hear more of Omar's episode on The Dig Presents, we'll post a link on social. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at AJE Podcasts. This episode was produced by David Enders and Nagin Oliayi, with Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, Khalid Sultan, Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Mahotra, Sonia Bagat, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.